and and plus they were they were required to sacrifice their actual life. And so, how can anyone come come and say, well, you know, they they got what they got for free? It came at a very high cost. They had to earn it. They had to deserve it. Closeness to the Prophet ﷺ was not by how sweet your smile is or how um, sparkling your personality was. It was by, by your track record in sacrificing for the cause of Islam. I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm just, don't feel sympathy for um, for this type of argument. No, I'm just uh, venting. Yeah, no, escalated, escalated. It is a decision for the person who is presenting the service to Allah whether to donate, whether to how much of their their time should be compensated by God and how much should be compensated by by money. That is a that is a decision that all of us insist on. And and yet this sort of notion that oh well you you're a servant of Islam so we just assume that you will donate. And then the ironic thing is that you tell people, okay, I've actually tried this several times where I've told people whatever money you're going to give is going to be donated to such and such to see if it will make any difference. Nothing. There's absolutely no difference. If you tell people that I don't, personally earn anything from this or you tell them that this is going to go towards supporting some Islamic cause it doesn't it doesn't have a different impact in them so I don't know what uh, what type of response did you get from a lot of people Uh, did you did you also send the flyers to the Islamic Center in Southern California? They probably don't even know. It was an idea, but um, I, uh, <coughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think a lot of people know because I talked to بدأ الإسلام غريب
Okay. <clears throat> oh, are these good? They're all done? Oh, it's worked? Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You know, I was uh, approaching the the topic of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. is um is a very daunting task its enormity is what makes what what causes a lot of people to refrain from dealing with it. There are several factors at play one one part of it is the sheer volume of uh, reports about the Prophet. And at what point in your studies do you consider it sufficient to speak with any level of authoritativeness about his pro- about his life the volume of reports is very much a uh, haunting thought for the conscientious of course one possibility is to take the bare essentials and stop there and say, well, as long as I stick to the basic essentials, I'm safe. In other words, what more or less everyone has said about him. But there is a problem in the safety, and the problem is, is that it is the least common denominator. And the least common denominator gives you consensus, perhaps authoritativeness, a degree of assuredness about his life, but it does not permit you to know him intimately so one possibility 
which is the quite common possibility, the one that you often find, in fact, pursued and followed by the vast majority of Muslims, is to produce what can be called an institutional history of the Prophet Institutional history means a history of the basic skeletal facts, what are perceived to be facts about the Prophet. He was born here, he grew up there, he was under the care of such and such person, and such and such a year he entered into such and such treaty in such and such a year he engaged in such and such battle and so on and so forth so the institutional history gives you a very official very public view of the Prophet It's official. Why is it official? Because it tells you what is what are his official acts. And so if you open up most books of Sira, uh, you will find that these books limit themselves to this type of official history. So we know the story about the death of his father, we know the story about the death of his mother, we know the story about him being set with the wet nurse Halima, and we know the story about his grandfather, and we know the story about the conversion of Abu Bakr and Omar, and the conversion of Bilal, and then the boycott instituted against the Prophet ﷺ and, and the, the, the Muslims, their persecution, his attempt to reach to Ta'if, to, to uh, uh, form some type of alliance with Ta'if, the, ultimately the failure of that attempt, the continued persecution, the migration to Medina, then after the migration, the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud, and each consecutive battle until you reach the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and then the entering into Mecca and then the few battles afterwards and then the last pilgrimage and that is pretty much his life. But like all official histories, all public persona histories do not allow you to know the person intimately. They do not permit you an intimacy with the, with the human being that is involved. Furthermore, they're somewhat deceptive because the Qur'an in the Qur'an, Allah engages the Prophet both 
in his private capacity and in his public capacity in his private history and public history in his private persona and his public persona engages both of them and in fact you will find that Allah in the Quran engages the Prophet in his private persona much more so than he engages the Prophet in his public persona so for example he talks to the Prophet about Allah talks to the Prophet about his emotions, his feelings, his longings, his pains, his agonies. Allah talks to the Prophet about his disputes with his wives, about his relationship with his friends, about his dismay with the incident with Aisha and Hadith al-Ufuq, the, 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 uh, the story, uh, the lies that were spread about her and her honor. It often talks about the Prophet in his dealing as a person who is wrapped up in clothes, in a blanket, so when it says قُمْ يَا أَيُّهَا or when he deals as a human being with a blind person or when the Prophet is dealing with a panicking woman that Allah heard التي تُجَادِلُكَ فِي زَوْجِهَا God heard that who is arguing with you about his, uh, uh, her husband. And so, if the Quran talks about the Prophet not simply as an institutional official history, but engages the Prophet talks about the Prophet as a private pri- by, by private I mean the, the, not not uh, uh, not the idea of privacy or what is held personally but by private I mean the distinction between the official history and the intimate history so it is akin to If you take the case of an individual, of a person, we don't, there are two ways of knowing this person. We can know what degrees this person held, where this person lived, where this person was born, where he lived, what jobs he held, and ultimately where he died and how he died. But when we, and this is a level of knowing the person, but when someone talks about this person in the intimate sense of the history of this person, we see different levels. 
So we see the suffering in the pursuit of degrees. We see glimpses of the upbringing of this person, the emotional influences, the emotional, psychological orientations of the person, etc., etc. And it's what ultimately allows us to say, we know this person or we do not know this person. So, the dilemma here is that on the one hand, we've got the official history, which has the virtue of being sizable and compact. You can size it up, and it is sufficiently compact. So you can, very much like introducing a person, and introducing a person by saying what degrees he held and what jobs he's held, it saves you the trouble of saying something meaningful about the person. It is much easier to just simply give the official public history. But on the other hand, if we seek an intimate history, then at what point do you say, I know a person? If we seek an intimate history, we are now taking on a serious task, a serious job, a demanding one, a real one. And that is, at what point do you say, I have been exposed sufficiently to this person that I can say, I know him? Very much like you deal with a human being. Is one day enough? Two days? Three days? A week? A year? Two years? Ten years? All their life? At what point do you say, I have knowledge? So if we deal with an intimate history, is it at the point of reading which sources? And at what point do we say we are now qualified? We can now authoritatively speak about this person's persona. Now, of course, we know that speaking without knowledge is a sin. But we also know that not knowing our prophet is another big sin. And here is another element. You notice that in the books of the books on the Prophet ﷺ in the pre-modern age, you had different types of sirah Sira, the, the, the history of the Prophet, written. On the one hand, you had something like Kitabul Ghazawat or Kutubul Ghazawat. What, what are these? Military campaigns. But these books, in reality, were 
nothing more than the official history of the Prophet So, these books would tell you the landmarks, uh, the, the, the official public points, the main points about his life, and that's all they did. At the same time, there was a variety of books that come under the general heading of Shama'il or the Sifat books, sometimes called the Sifat books, sometimes called the Shama'il books. And what these were, were descriptions of the intimate character of the Prophet. They attempted to engage the intimate persona of the Prophet. But what was quite clear is that there was an understanding that there is a two parts to the story. The official persona and then the more intimate reality of who the Prophet was. And that is why you find in books such as Sharh Sunnah by um, 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 what's his name? Al Qari, Al Allama Qari. Or Jama' al-Usul, or Jama' al-Masanid, or Jama' al-Usul by al-Bayhaqi, and, and so on. They're, they tended to be quite huge, and would report to you both intimate history and official history without attempting to favor one over the other. That tradition has been largely forgotten in the contemporary age. We have very much adopted the colonial, the, well, before colonial, the Victorian colonial tendency to focus on what is called the macro history or the official history or the history of institutions rather than the characteristics of a person, a society, a family, a tribe, and so on and so forth. This point is a very important one. Because you will often find that Orientalists claim that Muslims only cared about the history of, of institutions. That is actually not true. It is true that when we wrote about someone other than the Prophet, we tended to speak in terms of institutions, but that was because of the fact that we tended to put much less value on the truth of a person when it came to anyone less than the Prophet and the companions and the companions. 
And consequently, you find that our history, when it comes to both the Prophet and the companions, tend to speak very much about their persona as an individual. All right. So this takes us back then to what we started with. Clearly, if you only have an official history of the Prophet you don't have knowledge of the Prophet. And yet, these are the prevalent histories. And these prevalent histories produce an effect of data gathering, but no sincere adoption, or as I've referred to in one of my articles, as a personification of the Prophet. To say that I love the Prophet in the contemporary age becomes a leap of faith, sort of like Kierkegaard's, uh, the, the Christian philosopher, Kierkegaard's idea that religion cannot be ever proven and it requires a leap of faith. We have made the love of the prophet sort of like a leap of faith, not the result of intimate knowledge, but the result of, well, I will worship, 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 and then perhaps Allah will just put it in my heart. And so I wake up one day in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, in the typical fashion of Christian mythology and find myself madly in love with the Prophet. This type of ethic is quite contrary to the Islamic epistemology of knowledge and system of belief. In Islam, we don't have a leap of faith. You, you, what you earn is what you put in. And according to your level of knowledge will be the level of your worth. And so the idea that, well, I'm a nice person, I'm a good person, I'm, I am, and I worship and I will fall in love with the Prophet without an actual knowledge is, is inconsistent with the, with the way that the Quran itself talks about the Prophet. Because the Prophet, the Quran, refers to the Prophet often in intimate, in an intimate sense, which calls upon us to know this intimacy. Okay. If you do fall in love with the Prophet through a leap of faith, what you do fall in love with, since you don't have knowledge, is a constructed image of the Prophet. And since you do not have knowledge, which constructs this image for you, the constructed image is merely a projection of your own wishes and desires or weaknesses or emotional complexes. So the most dangerous thing in this is that 
you love a character like very much loving a movie star or very much loving a famous singer or a famous actor or or loving a a uh, um, um, you know the a level of infatuation with another person you don't often you don't know the person that you say you love but you lo- what you love is the constructed image of that person that in all probability has nothing to do with what is inherent and what is truthful to this person and so the dilemma then is at what point do you start saying well I know the prophet there is no question that it requires a reorientation to our approach to the life of our prophet in the contemporary age a total reorientation I am not satisfied unless I have read everything that I could put my hands on read every single report as to how a variety the sum total of testimony by those who encountered the Prophet as to what or how they saw the Prophet. So in other words, it is as if you are hearing the testimony in court and you hear the complete testimony and at this point, then you form your image based on the cumulative testimony that you have assessed, you have heard and assessed. And if we did have that orientation, you would find that the scholars in contemporary Islam would write about the intimate history of the Prophet and the official history. And consequently, Muslims who are not specialists and do not have access to the primary sources would be able to dip into both fields of knowledge but that is not the case in our contemporary age the case is very much like Martin Ling's or even the uh, Islahi book on the life of the Prophet or Haikal or um, you know and as much as their efforts is 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 to be um, um, praised but in the age of intellectual timidness it became a very dangerous thing to make an assessment of the personality of the prophet it became much easier to stick to the official history and to the history of institutions because of course if you read hundreds of volumes about of testimony about the prophet and then you try to make an assessment you always open yourself to criticism to those who attack you for your assessment and unfortunately many of the scholars took the much easier route of 
producing then an institutional history and leaving at that. What I hope to do is to share with you my assessment of the non-official intimate history of the Prophet Now let me be very clear about this. It is not customary among Muslims in the, in the contemporary age to speak of my assessment. That is not customary. But I insist on it and I use that word quite purposely. After reading Jama' al-Masaneed or I'la' al-Sunan or Jama' al-Usul or Marqat al-Mafatih or Sharh al-Sunan or al-Sunan al-Kubra or al-Sunan al-Suhra after reading both Sunni and Shi'i sources and sources that neither belong to the Shi'is nor Sunnis, but belong to historians that were more, uh, more uh, closer to the Ibadis or, or, or Khawarij or historians who were closer to the... To, and so on. What you are... What you emerge with is a... To, is cumulative testimony and a perception about the testimony you've heard. And very much like a judgment that you make, you reference, of course, part of the testimony as we will be doing when I reference part of this testimony, and i.e. part of the reports, in order to demonstrate the assessment you reached. Can I uh, have... Uh... <coughs> However, piety and honesty dictate that you remain keenly aware of the fact that this is your assessment of the evidence, that this is your ultimate assessment of the testimony presented. And not to claim to yourself what Allah has not given you. And that is that you represent the pristine truth. Or that Allah has put in your mouth the pristine truth. Our problem is not that we do this. The, our problem is that we don't do enough of this. We want the authoritative history, and so we stick to the easy history, the official history. But the official history is something that you can learn in a fairly short span of time. And you can get from a few books that tell you the major outlines of the public life of the Prophet, and that's pretty much it. 
Now, like any assessment that any of us reach, you must believe that this assessment is the honest truth about what you are assessing. In other words, you cannot just make an assessment without weighing all the evidence. Weighing the evidence that appears conflicting, that appears inconsistent. Weighing the evidence that completes each other. And being honest about the existence of tension in the evidence. In fact, not being honest about the existence of tension in the evidence is in itself a form of fraud and perjury. But that does not mean that just because there is tension in the evidence that you are precluded from making an assessment. For what it's worth, inshallah, I will share with you different Uh, I will share with you this assessment and share with you parts of the testimony that were influential in forming this assessment. But I will also try to be as frank as possible, as my memory permits me, about tensions in the evidence and why I resolve them in one way or the other, in my mind. This, of course, does not preclude anyone from doing their own search and reading their own sources in order to reach an assessment. Okay. So, who was Muhammad who was this person can we form a mental image of this person we have some facts that are uncontested by any Muslim the facts that are uncontested by any Muslim is that this man was selected by God to be a prophet. And that Allah does not select in Islamic belief, Allah does not select to prophecy except those who are most deserving of it. And deserving of it in an extent that is truly remarkable. Because we already see the manifestations, the, the, the outlines of this person's personality long before he is ever called upon to be a prophet. 
So we know from reports of both his supporters and his enemies that he was that he was a rather sensitive child. We know that as a child he played with other children but tended not to take pleasure in games that involved hurt. So he refused to stomp on ants as a child. He refused to throw stones at cats or stray dogs. He disliked or was not very keen about rough play. So we have numerous reports about him enjoying chasing, which is something that seems to have persisted running into his adulthood. Racing with someone, chasing someone, being chased with someone. We know that in some reports, he would run and stumble and fall and hurt himself a couple of times as a child because of that. We also know that he tended to be quiet missed his mother enormously, missed, missed his wet nurse enormously, often thought of them, and when he became adult enough, seems to have made it a consistent point to see his wet nurse, Halima, what more can we say about it? We also know that as a child, he was not very keen about loud entertainment. That in couple of times where he was taken to carnivals in Mecca, he fell asleep. He went with children into the carnivals and sat watching for a minute and then fell asleep. And woke up when everything was done. We also know that he tended to spend 
a lot of time, there are reports that he was, he liked shepherding or he liked being a shepherd because it allowed him to be on his own for long periods of time and to watch the sheep graze which is something that seems to have given him a degree of of both comfort and contemplative ability and so on so as a child he he seems and in terms of his own his personality he is a child who is neither static excitable constantly on a frenzy nor is he a child who is depressed despite the loss of his family but seems to be a melancholy child who is not exactly exactly a a popular in a full sense with the other kids likes to be on his own and so on and we already know that in his youth he is quite bashful his doesn't seem to have had while a hard worker a diligent person but is not a person who is preoccupied with his fate and career. So he continues to graze sheep until he is until it is suggested to him that perhaps it is time for him to engage in trade. And even then he doesn't seem very keen about doing what the other Meccan youth did, and that is to pursue opportunity. Although he likes to be alone and
he is not engaged in the pensive activity of people who tend to be of this character. So, for example, he doesn't write poetry. He is not falling constantly in love with or, or, or admiring women. We know that early on in his life, it is suggested to him by his uncles to marry. This is before he married Khadija a couple of years. And he does not accept the idea. We also know that at the one incident where he seems to have actually liked a woman and wanted to marry her, turned him down, both her father and herself, because of the fact that he was orphaned, and uh, although from a noble family, but not personally rich. But his subsequent history doesn't show any tendency to labor the point. So, his subsequent history with this woman and her family is unremarkable. He himself does not engage in any poetry, and in fact, shortly after the rejection, seems to, a couple of days after he's rejected, goes off on, on another one of his isolation trips, He doesn't like arguments. Is not an argumentative person. Tends to be silent for long periods of time. He becomes more talkative later on in his life. But at least at this point. And very significantly we don't hear of very close friends. We don't hear of him having very close friends at that time. And when we read the reports carefully, we find that in his youth, he, find, he found company, or he found... Uh, um, found the company of those who were substantially older than himself much more fulfilling than the company of people his age, did not enjoy talking about business, did not enjoy talking about career opportunities. We don't have a record of him engaging in conversations about women. And in fact, what the reports that we get from the pre-Islamic or, or even post-Islamic poetry by non-Muslim poets was that he is respected, admired, but considered unusual. 
if one would be impolite would say considered sort of weird not in the sense that he is um, eccentric it's because we don't see signs of eccentricity but in the sense that he would have been described in the woman who rejected him among her complaints is that he lacked ambition. It's a, it's a type of thing that modern people would say. He's an orphan, he's poor, and he lacked ambition. And what she meant by that, of course, is that, you know, in our languages, well, I don't see where is he going to be in 10 years. What didn't look like he was going anywhere. <clears throat> but he is strangely content with this. Not strangely, but uh, remarkably content with this and seems to have a very different standard for success. He doesn't read, and very few people in his time read or wrote, but he seeks knowledge in his own way, and that is by not allowing the defilement of disinformation to become his way of knowing. Okay. We all know the, sto the story of him or the, his reputation as the, um, the Amin, the, um, the honest one, the honest character. We all know the story of his when Khadija is told that there is a young man who doesn't seem keen about ripping off people's money and so she sends her friend to propose to him we all know that Khadija was substantially older about 20, 15 or 20 years older than he was and he marries her <coughs> and to this point there is no substantial change in his personality what is remarkable about his marriage is again it has some significant aspects to it one, he is not troubled by the idea of marrying someone who's older. He's not troubled by the idea of marrying someone who solicited him. He is not troubled by the idea of marrying someone who's rich. He is not troubled by the idea of remaining her employee after marrying her. working on a commission for his wife 
we don't have, unlike his later marriages, we don't have reports of arguments or fights with Khadija. Period. We don't have, she seems to accept his character, his personality as it is. She offers him to share in her property, he refuses. She offers him to a greater share in the trade so that he's not an employee working on commission. He says no. <coughs> she asks him what would he, in several, in several occasions, she offers him the robes of the more uh, robes similar to the ones worn by his cousins, in other words, robes that reflect his family stature, from uh, uh, Syrian robes or Yemeni robes, which were much better than... He shows no interest. She several times prevails upon him to stop wearing clothes that has become worn out and torn and to permit her to uh, uh, get him a new garb and his response is often no need but she would he eats little doesn't seem interested in food, doesn't, in her reports, doesn't say, I am hungry, but rather says, are you going to eat? When he's hungry, he wouldn't say, I am hungry, he would say, are you going to eat? But quickly fills up when he starts eating, he's not very interested. Every uh, every time she announces to him that today such and such has been prepared, he smiles and says, "Good, alhamdulillah." This is before he became a prophet. So it's not. It doesn't seem to. Um, show much enthusiasm for a particular type of food. Later on in his life, he does have favored meals, but it is quite significant and, and, and fascinating that at this point in his life, he is in a world of his own. And seems constantly pensive and, and, and in thought. But what is remarkable is, is that the articulation of what he is in thought about is never clear. So in other words, 
when approached, Khadija finds out early on that asking him, well, what is it that you think about when you go off, because he would, he would as you know, go in isolation for a week or ten days at a time, or even longer at times, and they're asking him, what is it that you are thinking about? What is it that you do when you're up there? What is it that, why do you need to be alone? Is all of no avail. He is, one, not interested in sharing it, but two, not able to, or not willing, Allahu A'lam, which, to articulate it to her. And so early on in his life, she refrains from asking. Or early on in their marriage, she does, she, and she also refrains from offering him opportunities. But is aware that this is a gentle soul, for example, becoming the owner of of property and and more merchants and so on. The the kids in Mecca distinguish themselves by the level of competence they showed in commerce, and he was ex- he was competent in the sense that he was very honest. He was just meticulously honest. Um, but he was not keen about new deals and bigger uh, trades and and so on and so forth. I mean, he seems to have done basically the fundamentally what is required of him as an employee of Khadija honestly and diligently and left it at that. Now the fact that we also don't see much we don't we don't see a high level of intimate interaction between him and the members of his family. They respect him, but he doesn't share their world, he doesn't share their interests, and they don't know exactly how to include him in their circle. When he does attend, he tends to be quiet, and not join in any of their festivities, not that he is, he doesn't condemn their festivities in the sense that he doesn't condemn having the the notion of amusement, but he seems to not belong to it not to feel a degree of connection to these festivities, whether it's a celebration of of a major trade or uh, any of the pagan celebrations or uh, 
the interest in slave girls or the trade in slaves or the trade in alcohol or etc etc all the, the various things that marked life in Mecca for what it is and of course it struck them at rather very odd that he showed no interest in obtaining the blessings of their gods the um, the stone idols even when he was off on to trade wasn't the Meccans gave offering to the gods to protect them during their travel and bless their trade and to allow them to return home safely and Muhammad was not keen about any of these types of blessings but would simply smile when told where are aren't you worried that you will be such and such and he would smile and say my life is in the hand of my God what stands out in this period of his life is his non-combative non-obtrusive personality he is not flaunting his particularity, his individuality in the faces of people that surround him. He is not out on a crusade but to, to, to reform others as much as we notice that he is investigating his own reform so we know that he makes it very clear to his people that he does not approve of the burying alive of the girls and when he is told that people are about to do that he is repulsed by it and he tells them that they are acting foolishly and so on but there is a certain timidity about him a certain timidness about his personality as if feeling that before he goes out to change the others what is demanded of him is knowledge and the knowledge he tries to seek in his particular way so that the knowledge in the lack there are no books there are no scholars there are no teachers and his method of knowledge is primarily reflection. Now, there are reports that at that time he also seeks knowledge 
from um, Jewish scholars and Christian priests. The main problem is is that in Mecca itself there are no Christians and there are no Jews. What they what do exist are in some dispersed Christians and dispersed Ahnaf. The Ahnaf which seem to have been a creed of monotheistic Christianity, Christianity that rejected the, the Trinity, but it was not an institutional formalized religion. It was more a heretical sect of Christianity. But even then, there is no indication that the Ahnaf relied on texts. And the Jews, Jewish merchants which the Prophet encounters in his trade are not Jewish scholars. They would not be in a position to answer questions. But what is clear is that he is far more interested in asking people questions than he is interested in giving them answers. So, he is constantly asking about the origins of things. Why do people this do this? Why do people do that? Why do you believe this? Why do you believe that? But even his his form of belief is rather unobtrusive. It is not like Ibrahim. If you remember, Ibrahim was rather right in your face. He he w- he went and he took the axe and he destroyed the idols and put the axe there and and said, "Oh, why don't you ask this guy?" And so on. The personality of Ibrahim uh, emerges as someone who was much more aggressive than the personality of Muhammad at this point. In fact, less aggressive than Moses, than Musa. So we don't have a report of Muhammad caring about wrestling. Wrestling was a was a big, um, 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 what do you call this, um, pastime in Mecca. But while we have reports of Omar wrestling and Abu Bakr wrestling and Hamza wrestling, before Islam and after Islam, the Prophet himself is not interested. And in fact, during his youth, he isn't, even seems to have abandoned, abandoned running, racing. And he watched camel races and horse races, but engaged in them in very infrequent times. Okay, all of this starts giving us a sense of 
the taste of the personality, all of this before Islam. We also, and this is the time in which Allah selects the Prophet as the Prophet. And in fact, this is the time where This, this rather unusually nice, quiet person who is married to a rich woman but is not rich, who is not, who is part of society, so he engages in, 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 the, in the negotiations in the um, in the treaty between the tribes to suspend war between them, he engages in these negotiations. And in fact, his comment about it is that it is one of the blessed things that I've done in my life before Islam, and if it would have happened after Islam, I would have gladly engaged in it. So he's not an entire outsider, but he's not really an insider either. We also know that even at the time that he is married to Khadija and Khadija had servants, he doesn't buy a concubine, doesn't marry another woman. Khadija is getting older with him doesn't show an interest in anyone else. And in fact, after, even after Khadija dies, the first woman he marries, Sauda, was, a was older and particularly unattractive. But we'll get to that. The, there is a disagreement as to whether he married Aisha first or Sauda first, but the, the majority opinion and the evidence clearly points out to Sauda being his, his first wife after Khadija. And despite the existence of, of servants, Khadija walks in to find him sitting, sewing his clothes, and comments to him, why don't you leave this to one of the servants to do? And he smiles and continues sewing his clothes. Is his response to many things is to smile, but if pressured, he'll give a response. And if pressured, he, and we'll get to that, the, his, his way of annoyance, he becomes annoyed, 
In other words, he is a person who is keenly aware of his own parameters, but is also keenly aware of the parameters of others. So we don't have a report, a single report, about him, and I'm, I'm concentrating all at that one period of time, and that's all I'm going to do tonight, of him engaging Khadija in directive instructions. He is not, doesn't ask Khadija why she met with this person or why she talked to this person. Doesn't, if he, he, when he leaves her alone, he is, he is keen about going around and asking people to be with her, but doesn't seem keen about placing limits on her. In other words, he, he has a sense of discomfort about imposing himself. And so that when he is selected as a prophet, the first reaction to the selection of this person is, and this is before the fog, remember our, our halakha on the fog, before the fog sets in, is, oh yeah, well that makes sense. This is, if, it's a type of reaction where we say, well, yeah, of course. And then once the fog comes in, and you start thinking, well, why an orphan? Why a poor person? Why particularly him? Why in this particular tribe? And so on. And so that if you look at the very first leaks about his prophecy, the attacks on him are extremely subdued. Extremely subdued. In fact, the attacks are primarily oriented on what was an unusualness, a marginality, that he is on the margins of society, to exaggerating it to an eccentricity, to exaggerating it to an insanity. So in other words, the very first reactions is to say, you know, what a, yes, he's such an, a nice person, but he was always sort of off, and now he's lost. The subsequent reactions become, and that is when, when, the, when the fogs start coming in, when the, when the initial reaction wears off, start becoming more vehement, more angry more vicious and I'm talking polemically so then he becomes a magician then the question is well why would God pick him and not someone else 
But there is a distinctiveness about him that makes the initial reactions rather not a complete surprise that a call of prophecy would come from this person. This is pretty much what we know about the personality of the Prophet before his message. And we know very little because Muslims, quite honestly, were far more interested in him after he became a prophet than before he became a prophet. But yet, if you truly want to trace the substance of a person, the essence of what makes goodness, And I'm not talking about legally. I'm talking about the, how you identify what is good in a person. You look at this person before the law and after the law. And when you do, you start getting a very particular sense that the Prophet was the type of person who you would not invite to a wild sorority fraternity party but the type of person you would go to if you had problems the type of person you would like to hang around when you want to be clean or you feel guilty about what you are, but once you're arrogant again, he would make you feel bad because just being with him would put a guilt trip on you. With the type of person that is threatening without ever uttering anything that's threatening, in other words, the simple fact that he's there, so content, so quiet, so tranquil, what is, he seems to have a lot in his head, but doesn't seem particularly concerned about what you think about what is in his head. You have to drag it out of him. And if you try very hard, you might annoy him. He seems to smile as if he knows. But when you talk to him, he emphasizes what he doesn't know. So, we don't catch him before Islam saying, I know, too many times. These are the, these are the dogs from um, from the abandoned streets next to our home. I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, in the villages in Egypt, when you hear the dogs dogs bark at night, 
it's considered like a, b- a bad omen. It's it's a spooky thing. And when I hear the dogs barking without seeing them, I always get that sort of flashback. So, you, we don't find him talking to people about what he knows but in fact insisting upon what he doesn't know constantly seems to be confused but entirely content and stable in this confusion so he is the type of person that if you had in class if you were a jock, jockey, one of these sports people, would just get on your nerves because it's extremely threatening without being threatening. If you, if he would, in fact, you might be tempted to pick on him, but since he is not particularly affected by threats and is largely aloof, the fun would wear off very quickly. And in fact, we find this about very few reports about in, individuals who at, at, in the in the in the um, in the councils in which well I, I should backtrack to give you this. his uncle would as a as a child take him to the meeting of elders in Quraysh and this ups annoyed the elders and said you know as a child <coughs> You're bringing this child to our council. Why? We don't bring our children. And his uncle, Abdul Muttalib, who was very much in love with his nephew, would always tell them, well, leave him, for I think that he has a great fate. Huh? That's his grandfather, sorry. His grandfather. Uh, Leave... uh, don't bother me about him because I think he has a great faith. But then when he grows up, the that same kid whose grandfather would take to the to the council meetings and become the a source of envy for the other kids showed a remarkable lack of interest in those same council meetings. So that now, in where he is expected to be there, he is often not there unless asked to be there by his grandfather or one of his uncles. And when he does come, he is often silent the whole meeting unless it involves something 
uh, ho uh, uh, hospitality towards the pilgrims or something that related to uh, uh, giving what supplying them with water in other in, in other words a rather very limited he becomes enthusiastic when it is in negotiations when they're going to undergo negotiations with the other with the Arab tribes to make sure that there is no injustice but this enthusiasm does not translate to a role of leadership. And so some of the youth got annoyed and picked on him. <clears throat> and picked on him, the, the, the reports are different, is that they, they, they verbally sort of tease him as they, they tell him, where are you going now, Muhammad? Uh, um, to hide in your caves and so on, picked on him by calling him the the orphan um, who will live and die poor despite his, his rich wife and so on. And again, he doesn't show a particular inclination. He looks at them. Actually, in, in several reports, he simply looks at the ground and keeps walking. Doesn't even respond to them. And in another re report, he sa his response is simply, and you are right. About that he's an orphan and he is poor and he enjoys his poverty. And, you know, and his response is simply, and you are right. Sadaqtu. And so, and that is pretty much what we know about him before his prophecy. And most of the reports that we have about this period of his life comes either from individuals who were close to him like Ali or Khadija who taught, gave us glimpses about his life before Islam, or non-Muslim Meccans who remained non-Muslim and talked about him, either in his poetry, in their poetry, or after the conquering of Mecca and the entering of the whole of Mecca into Islam, started recalling how amazing it was that this individual who was on the margins of society had become the center the center central point for Meccan society and let's have the episode stop here till tomorrow That doesn't mean that he was constantly in their company, but he preferred. So, for example, we find that he is, when he is socializing, it is with his grandfather, often older or elders in, in, uh, in Mecca, 
Um, we know we we have reports of him uh, being with Hamza, who is older than him. We have reports of him um, being um, with um, one of his uncles, I believe, Abbas. Um, on several occasions, but and in fact, when the the roles in, in the role he played in negotiating the treaty between the Arab tribes, um, he was one of the very few young people that played a role in these negotiations, and that is because the elders knew more were closer to him than people his age. And they knew that he had the type of serene character and personality that would allow him to, uh, to, to talk and do his negotiations. But more importantly, he was perceived by variety of, of, of participants as a non-partisan, and Mecca thought that this would be a sign of good faith on their part to pick someone who is not keen about uh, uh, defending the tribal interests of Christ, but seemed to be much more even-handed. I mean, it is it is very difficult to quantify how much time he actually spent in the company of others, but you would have to define the divided by um, before marriage and after marriage, and you would have to say that after his marriage to Khadija, even less than before his marriage to Khadija. And that when he was married to Khadija, he clearly preferred her company and the company of the mountains than all else. And so he was pretty much either in business or with Khadija or in the mountains. And we have very few reports in which he attends anything else. He is called upon several times to attend important meetings. 